Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. This is the organization that brought down Keystone XL, that galvanized an entire environmental movement. And now they've got nine people in their U.S. program office. It's just, I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I kept asking people, like, is this true? Like, this can't be right. And then I asked 350.org itself, and they said, yep, nine people. (laughs) I was like, how? How? I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, reporter Zach Coleman... I wanted to do this story because I've been tracking the environmental movement and how they're living up to the values that they put out there in public. I mean, a lot of these groups are saying we need to be intersectional. We need to put race and equity and diversity at the center of what we do because we can't win on climate policy if we aren't working for all people. On how a once upstart group that became a force and supercharged the environmental movement is now a fraction of its size. And why? 350.org started in 2008. It was a group of Middlebury College friends, seven of them, and their professor, Bill McKibben, who is a prominent environmentalist, author. He's one of the first to really write for a large audience about climate change. And they said, you know, we needed to kind of put people back at the center of why we're trying to address climate change. It was meant to be a global organization from the start, uh, but it started in the U.S. And what they really did was kind of come up with these mass demonstrations around the world, certainly in the U.S. where they focused on Keystone XL, but their coming-of-age moment was a 2009 protest uh, across 181 countries ahead of these pivotal climate talks in Copenhagen. That really ended in kind of political disaster, but this was a, a huge moment for the world. But they really they really made their name in the U.S. by getting these massive, really spectacle-worthy protests uh, going to oppose the Keystone XL pipeline. Which you might remember, I mean, they were all over the National Mall, they were in front of the White House, they were getting arrested, they are doing these stunts, really, and it was it was cool. I mean, it got media attention. It got what they were going for. The rally at Justin Herman Plaza was one of hundreds being held all around the world, organized by 350.org. 350.org. Group 350.org. We really have them to thank for galvanizing the environmental movement in the 2010s, and they, they were the face of it. They were really kind of the fresh faces and the people who got a lot of the bigger mainstream green groups to get behind this message of social equity, of racial equity, of, of you know, bringing different cultures and backgrounds into the movement because what they had tried before, which was power politics, you know, appealing to the D.C. lawmakers, uh, that, that hadn't worked. So from your story, it seemed like this is what they're trying to do, right? They're bringing in all these disparate groups together who have been affected in different ways to fight for these causes that they're taking on, like the Keystone Pipeline. But you write that at the center, there were actually some diversity and equity challenges in the organization. Yeah, let's think about this. I mean, if you go to Middlebury College, you're more likely than not going to be white. So, you know, there's seven white 
students from Middlebury College with their white professor. And they say, look, if we want this to be a broad and powerful movement, we've got to look a little bit more like the world than we currently look. So they went out and they tried to diversify. I mean, back when uh, they were doing these protests, I mean, they got a lot of Native American, uh, you know, protesters. Uh, they, they've, they've, this this pipeline, Keystone XL pipeline, was going to cut right through Native American land. Right. Same with you know the Dakota Access pipeline that inspired Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to to run for Congress in many ways. It was a year of awakening for a lot of individuals. I found myself at the end of 2016 at Standing Rock. I found myself in Flint, Michigan, and I just felt like at this point we have nothing to lose. So this was a broad movement, and it was not because you know, of political salience that they did it, it was because this does affect all people. And at its core, they were coming at it from the right place. It's just when they started to build this organization and this movement, it, it was harder to change the structures internally than the people that they hired. I mean, it's not enough to just hire a diverse group of people. You've got to give people agency and power and the ability to shape the direction of an organization. And from my reporting, that isn't what happened. And so what were some of the other challenges they faced? It seemed from your piece that they grew so quickly that they couldn't keep up with that level of growth. Right. So what happened was there was a, towards the end of the last decade, so late 2018, there was this three-year strategy that 350.org put in place. They wanted to become more diverse. They wanted to look more like the world with this understanding that the only way that they were going to get the change they wanted to see was by making sure everyone felt they had skin in the game by passing meaningful climate policy. And if you don't feel that your community is represented, then why would you go try to convince Washington, D.C. to change how we do climate policy? So they wanted to build up an organization that came from all corners of this country, all corners of this world to put that pressure out there. So they go through this hiring process, but at the same time, they want to make a political splash too. There's these 2019 climate strikes that were inspired by Greta Thunberg, and Mm. there was going to be a global effort to do this. And 350.org, which had made its name through these massive, massive demonstrations across the world, said, okay, we can do our traditional role of organizing this, being the backbone of all the logistics, but we need to hire a lot of people. We want to make a huge splash. So the executive director, May Bove, ended up saying, you know what, we're going to double our budget. We're going to double our staff. We are going to go big for this 2019 climate strike. Hmm. This announcement was made in March of 2019. By the time July rolls around, they're already talking about doing budget cuts. Wow. When, When the group is about to go out on climate strikes, joining the rest of the global environmental movement, the... 350.org leadership is meeting behind the scenes to finalize budget cuts and massive layoffs. So they sent their own people out to do this work. uh, And and at the same time, the organization is meeting about how they're going to cut all these jobs because the funding just never came through. Wow. The organization had never raised more than $20 million in a single year. And yet they decided to set a budget of $25 million. So there was just no real data to back this up. And in fact, there mm-hmm. was a, a postmortem, an audit of their finances that essentially said this, that all their fundraising was disconnected from any data. There was no data. There was no 
uh, valuation of how those dollars uh, translated into any results. All the fundraising was story-based and not data-driven. So this was just not a well-articulated budget. It was not based on anything other than feeling. And what ended up happening was they went on a hiring spree where they got people to take jobs, uproot their lives, uh, you know, put their trust in this very splashy, very influential, very effective to this point organization. And just months later, they were let go. I mean, this is a group that on their U.S. program office, when they announced the new budget in March 2019 had 28 people in the U.S. office. And then they went on this hiring spree. It got up to 50 people. Then there were mass layoffs, resignations. They're now down to nine people in the U.S. program office. Are there other lessons here for different climate groups or the climate movement? Like, what are you going to be looking at? Well, there's got to be more, right? I wasn't expecting this out of 350.org, to be honest. For me, it was like, I started reporting on the environment in 2010, 2011. So their rise was kind of tracking with how I was covering hmm. the the beat. So it's like we were birthed at the same time, essentially. <laughs> and and I always thought of them as this very progressive, uh, diverse, trying to center other voices kind of organization. And And they do do that. But to hear about this internal strife... You're like, wow, I mean, you know, was that why why couldn't you do that internally? Why why weren't those values reflected in that way at the organization? And not everybody had the experience, the negative experience. There were people I talked to who also had positive experiences who were people of color and and I wanna, you know, say that this is not like the worst organization in the world. It's not. I've covered far worse. But the fact that there are so many, um, you know, it's just I think there was actually a a House Natural Resources hearing in February where the whole topic was on movement diversity and equity. And one of the speakers who I quoted in the story was Kia Chatterjee, who was at the U.S. Climate Action Network. And, And she said, you know, we need to have a diverse group of climate activists and all of our organizations have to reflect that and have those people in power too, in positions of of influence, because we need to have a broad people-centered movement to have effective political change. And I think that that's something that I want to cover. Like, is that, is that true? I mean, you know, is, is that the way in which uh, the environmental movement wins? Because there are competing schools of thought that, you know, you could use your DC power and influence to try to uh, affect policy by having relationships with influential committee heads, or you could just take it to the streets and try to win at the ballot box and make it sure that every politician, no matter where they represent, has to worry about the climate voter. So, hmm. I mean, which is faster? Which is more influential? Mm-hmm. Which strategy will win? I don't know, but there's certainly a, a matter of debate within the environmental movement right now about uh, how to address that question. Zach Coleman, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for letting me ramble. Also today, Africa's CDC will ask for its COVID-19 vaccine donations to be paused until the third or fourth quarter of this year. 
the Africa CDC director said that the primary challenge for vaccinating the continent is no longer supply shortages, but instead logistics challenges and vaccine hesitancy. And the three white men convicted on state charges in Georgia for murdering Ahmad Arbery were found guilty on Tuesday of federal hate crimes, indicating that the jury decided that the three men were motivated by racism. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.